Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor Philip Gorski, a professor of sociology and co-director of the Center for Comparative Research at Yale. Professor Gorski is a comparative historical sociologist, and his research focuses on topics such as state formation, nationalism, revolution, economic development, and secularization, with particular attention to the interaction of religion and politics, which leads us to the topic we will be discussing today, civil religion. Welcome, Professor Gorski. Thank you very much, Marilyn. So, what is civil religion? Well, civil religion is a way of thinking about what the proper relationship between religion and politics should be. Uh, and I think to get a full sense of what civil religion is, it's helpful if we uh, come at it from a number of different angles. So one way of thinking about it is um, if we imagine uh, religion and politics as sort of separate spheres or systems with, within a society, uh, we can imagine them having different relationships to one another. Um, civil religion um, understands that relationship as one of being uh, relative autonomy, which is to say that they're, uh, that they're distinct systems, but uh, they have an area of overlap between them. Uh, and this sets it apart, for example, from what might be called liberal secularism or total separationism, which says that religion and politics should have absolutely nothing to do with one another. And it also sets it apart uh, from what I call religious nationalism, which is the notion that the religious and the political communities uh, should be uh, exactly the same. Uh, another way of thinking about it is uh, historically, uh, because in any particular country, uh, civil religion will be a particular tradition that draws on a certain stock of symbols and stories and rituals, and what exactly is in that toolkit uh, is something that is a product of a specific national history. So in the case of American civil religion, I see it as having two main sources, what I would call the covenant theology of the Puritans and the civic republicanism of the founding fathers. Now, what do I, what do I mean by covenant theology? Well, many of the original Puritan theologians and preachers imagined uh, the U.S., or at least New England, as a kind of a new Israel. That is, as uh, a sort of a chosen people uh, that had a sacred covenant with God, and that uh, if they remained true to that covenant, God would remain bound to them and would bless them. Uh, and if they deviated from that covenant, uh, they would be rebuked and punished and, and scolded. Um, the civic republican tradition of the founding fathers um, envisioned um, uh, the United States more as a new Athens, if you will. And their fundamental notion was that the success of the American experiment in democracy and self-government uh, required not just good institutions, but required also a virtuous citizenry. And what they understood by virtue uh, was really two things. One, uh, sort of a willingness to take bold action on behalf of the community, but also uh, a kind of cultivation of self-restraint and self-discipline. Uh, they saw these as really sort of two sides uh, of the same coin. Now, interestingly, I think that these 
two traditions, although certainly historically distinct, um, are actually very complementary to one another. There are certain places in which, in which they converge. And in particular, um, on two points. One, the notion that, uh, that um, a community is more just than the sum of individuals, that it has a, a certain kind of reality of its own. And that the, the sort of health and survival of, um, of a vigorous political, Republican political community requires certain kinds of uh, the cultivation of certain kinds of moral virtues on the part of, part of the population. And um, these two things, I think, have been largely blended together then in, in, Ameri in American history. The third and final way that I would uh, approach civil religion is as a certain kind of political or, or normative stance. It's a certain way of understanding uh, what religion is about and how it should properly relate to politics, and it's a certain way of understanding politics and how politics should properly relate to religion. So from the religious side, I think there are really sort of three things that I would single out. Um, one of them is, again, kind of activism. And this is the notion that, um, that religion um, imposes a duty on believers to try to alleviate suffering and to improve the world in some way. So it's not sort of the, the world is a horrible, sinful place. Let's turn away from it. Uh, let's retreat into our own communities. Um, and, uh, and wait for you know, the return of Jesus or something like that. Um, another thing it involves is a certain measure of humility. And I think um, this in the in this Puritan tradition comes from a kind of a profound sense of the sinfulness and, and, and limitations of human beings. That um, though people are devoted to trying to improve the world, that the world is in some ways a kind of not easily moldable. Um, simply because of the way that human beings are. And the last thing that I would emphasize uh, is engagement, which I think follows from the previous two, which is uh, kind of a willingness uh, to open up with and deliberate with uh, people who think differently with non-believers or people who might, you might consider to be heterodox in one way or another. And that is certainly something that comes after the Puritans uh, because they would not have been open to that kind of engagement. From the political side, I think um, I've touched on some of the main points already, but um, the, the main, thing that I, main things I would emphasize here are uh, an emphasis on engagement and restraint so that um, we see self-government uh, self as an experiment that we're engaged in collectively with other people that requires us uh, to sort of open up and deliberate with people, but also to be restrained and civil uh, in our deliberations uh, with those other people. So in some civil religion, as I understand it, is a certain way of understanding the relationship between religion and politics. It uh, has a certain understanding of the way in which religious institutions and political institutions and communities should relate to one another. Um, it also uh, refers to a certain kind of tradition within American politics. And finally, it's a certain kind of ethical or, or normative position that we take in our dealings with others in politics. So can you give us some examples of um, civil religion that we might see today? I can. Uh, and the, the one that I would point to actually is the presidential campaign of, of Barack Obama, which is uh, what actually got me interested in looking at this subject and reexamining it again. 
And here I would point in particular to the speech on race that he gave in, in Philadelphia following uh, the uproar around uh, the, Jer the Jeremiah Wright tapes. Um, you may remember that the, the opening line of that speech, uh, which was deli delivered at the convention, uh, the, Const Center, the Constitution Center in Philadelphia, um, was taken directly from the preamble of the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to, to form a, a more perfect union. Um, and immediately, uh, the, the place and the, 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 the oratory already evokes uh, two of the most sacred uh, things within American history. The, the Constitution, which is one of the two most sacred documents in American political history. And of course, this is taking place across the street from Independence Hall, where the Constitution was actually written, uh, none of which I'm sure uh, was, was a coincidence. And um, what he's talking about then is um, a, more perfect, a more perfect union between, uh, between the races. And what's interesting here is that um, he immediately shifts um, within a few lines of the speech, also to, into a kind of a Puritan register as well. Uh, here echoing um, Abraham Lincoln's seg second inaugural address and also the writings of Frederick Douglass. Uh, he talks about the Constitution as a, uh, as a document that was flawed by what he calls the, the stain of the original sin of slavery. And um, so using this very explicitly uh, religious language, which also sort of evokes this notion of a covenant that's unfulfilled, that, uh, that there was a certain kind of political covenant that was embodied in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, a commitment to equal rights for all people, which was then uh, violated um, immediately by uh, the recognition of slavery. Uh, in, in the Constitution, three-fifths rule, so on and so forth. Um, now, what's interesting here, though, is that he's not just evoking the language of, uh, of American civil religion. There is an important way in which he is also broadening and transforming it. It's important to remember here that uh, neither the Puritans nor the founding fathers were, exact, were exactly emancipationists uh, or abolitionists. Um, uh, certainly, you know, Jefferson, you know, for whatever, uh, you know, his personal uh, dalliances in history may have been, was no champion of, of race mixing. In fact, had, um, you know, some rather um, shocking things to say, actually, about uh, both African Americans and Native Americans. Uh, and the same thing uh, could be said, actually, about many of the most prominent Puritan preachers. Uh, and intellectuals, the Mathers, for example, uh, who were also not proto-abolitionists by any means. So there's a, a way in which what he's doing here is he's, ex uh, he's going back to these original values uh, that are embodied in the Constitution, and he's saying that this is a sort of an unfolding experiment um, in which we're sort of trying to live up to the promises that we made at the founding of the United States perhaps not fully understanding exactly what it was uh, that, that we were promising. And that's another sense in which I think this is a bit like uh, the, the covenant in the Bible, that this was sort of an unfolding relationship, a sort of unfolding uh, agreement uh, between uh, the ancient Israelites uh, and, and their God. Um, 
So I guess what this, this makes clear is that there is also a kind of a, a political dimension to the project too. Um, I'm, you know, given that, uh, that civil religion seems to be making a comeback as one way of understanding how uh, politics and religion should be related in the United States, I think it's important that, um, that we begin to reflect on uh, what that tradition is, how it's changed over time, and what would be a defensible version of civil religion in contemporary in the contemporary United States, which is more religiously and culturally diverse uh, than ever. And um, that, I think, actually is one of the great challenges um, in thinking about civil religion. That is, that civil religion can no longer be just a kind of a minimal, watered down kind of Protestantism or, or even monotheism. It has to be something that can em embrace uh, believers and unbelievers alike, theists and non-theists alike. And that's also part of what I'm trying to think through right now in this project. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the history. How did the term civil religion originate? Um, the, the person who coined the term civil religion is um, the French political philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in uh, The Social Contract. And um, the way in which it then really entered into, uh, into kind of social science uh, discourse is through, through the work of Robert Bella, um, emeritus professor of sociology at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, who wrote a, a very famous essay called The American Civil Religion in 1967, which provoked uh, an enormous uh, uproar that lasted, lasted for a good 20 years, um, and which maybe I'm in a way trying to stir up again. Mm -hmm. um, what is it about civil religion that interests you? Why are you studying it, researching it? Well, uh, full disclosure, part of it is that uh, Robert Bella was, was my doctoral advisor. And, I think it was because of having gotten to know his thinking and having read a lot of his writings on civil religion when I was a graduate student that when I heard o Obama speaking uh, in the race speech and other speeches, um, you know, I, I heard the echoes of King and Kennedy, I heard the echoes of Lincoln and Douglas, and I immediately connected it to this tradition uh, of American, American civil religion. But, of course, that's not the only reason. Um, there are lots of interesting things to work on, um, you know, from a purely scholarly point of view. And one of the reasons I wanted, chose to work on this instead of some other projects right now is because I do see civil religion um, as um, one way, possibly, a set of resources that we might use to overcome uh, the, the kind of stark divides of the culture wars um, that have uh, so split the United States politically over the last 20 or 25 years and returning to a kind of a vital center, uh, you know, to some sort of deeper moral consensus that might allow Americans to come together again uh, to solve some of the really serious problems that confront us at the, at the, at the present moment. And um, I think it's important, again, um, you know, as a scholar to bring you know, whatever knowledge and resources I have to bear um, into that, try to make a contribution to, mm -hmm. to sort of understanding that concept of civil religion. Okay, and you have a new theory you're working on. How does it differ or expand upon the, the current thinking around civil religion? Well, I, 
there are really sort of two sets of theorists that one has to be in conversation with if one talks about civil religion. There is, on the one hand, political philosophers. Um, here, I would point especially to Plato, uh, Machiavelli, and Rousseau. And then there are social scientists. And here, uh, besides uh, Robert Bell, I would point to um, the late 19th century French sociologist, Emile Durkheim. And my position is a little bit different than, than all of theirs. So let's start with Plato. Um, Plato uh, wrote three blueprints for a kind of ideal republic. Uh, there's, of course, the republic, but also the statesman and the laws. And in all three of those works, he saw uh, some kind of state-established um, obligatory cult as being uh, an integral ingredient to uh, Republican self-government as, as, as he understood it. Uh, and in fact, he went so far as to say that um, refusal to uh, participate in that cult should lead to punishment, possibly even to, possibly even to death, um, if someone was sufficiently recalcitrant. Now, obviously, um, I would call that not civil religion, but civic religion. That's um, an understanding of the relationship between religion and politics, which sees, in a way, religion as being subservient to the ends of the state and really not even different, in a way, uh, from, from the state. Um, Machiavelli is uh, often seen as another sort of big figure in the, in the development of, of civil religion, uh, but he has, not surprisingly, a more Machiavellian take on what role religion should play in supporting self-government. Um, he sees it as um, a, perhaps a necessary evil, as a convenient instrument that can be used by rulers or ruling classes to instill uh, certain virtues in, uh, in the masses. So, uh, you know, self-discipline and uh, bravery and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, again, uh, this sort of purely instrumental relationship, almost kind of hypocritical relationship, is not one that I would sort of morally, morally espouse. Finally, there's Rousseau, who coins the term, uh, but he's really uh, almost, uh, well, his vision is kind of of a, a, a sort of a platonic neo-civic religion. So what he argues for is, again, a kind of a state-established obligatory cult. It's a kind of a watered-down deism is what he actually actually has in mind um, with similar penalties of people who are nonconformists being expelled. So really where I part ways with all of these traditions is um, in um, vociferously defending the rights of conscience and of religious freedom, which I see um, as integral, integral uh, to what the United States has been as, as, um, as an experiment and, and as a democracy, and really in some ways uh, I see the rights of conscience as the fount of all uh, understandings of rights, um, rights to free speech, uh, the right to assembly. These are all things which, in a way, are implied by, uh, by the rights of conscience when they're really fully understood. Um, and what about uh, the two social scientists, Durkheim and Bella? Um, Durkheim is, like many, European intellectuals of his generation was a prophet of secularization. He imagined that uh, religion would necessarily disappear as modernity unfolded. Uh, unfortunately, he was, or fortunately, he was wrong about that. 
depending on your point of view. I think it's, uh, the U.S. is a very modern society, but it's not, at least in terms of the convictions of its, uh, of its citizens, a particularly secular society, on the contrary. And it's not at all clear uh, that, uh, that the rest of the world is going uh, more the way of secular Europe. I think actually the United States is probably more the model for what the religious world will look like years from now. So that's, his vision was that civil religion would replace traditional religion, but that was based on the assumption that traditional religion was going away, which I think has turned out to prove, has proven to be incorrect. Um, now, Robert Bella um, certainly did not share in this uh, view that secularization would triumph, that religion would disappear. Uh, but he was in many ways still very much uh, informed by, by Durkheim, believing in a way that every society, to be a cohesive society, had to have some kind of central moral consensus around which, uh, around which it would cohere. And um, he argued that civic religion was that consensus within, within the United States. Where I think he perhaps went a little bit off path was in not seeing that there are other rival ways of thinking about how religion and politics should be related, um, that it played an enormous role in, uh, in American history. And I've already alluded to two of them. One of them is liberal secularism and, or total separationism. This is the notion that religion and politics absolutely shouldn't, mi absolutely shouldn't mix religious Arguments have no place in the public realm. Religious actors have no place in public life. Uh, religious symbols have no place in public spaces. And uh, this view is already there um, in Jefferson's late writings. Um, it's Jefferson, after all, who invents this famous phrase about the, the wall of separation between church and state, mm -hmm. uh, which then becomes uh, kind of a lens through which uh, a lot of thinking about uh, legal thinking about church and state then is shaped uh, during the during the second half of the 20th century. Um, another one is that's very important is religious nationalism, and by this I mean the view that the U.S. is and should be uh, a Christian nation, and uh, the sort of implicit view that people who are not Christians or and, and even Christians of a particular kind have no place. Uh, in, in the United States. And I think uh, one of the more remarkable um, uh, statements in this line is uh, a statement made by George W. Bush some years ago when asked whether he thought an atheist could be a good American, he expressed very serious doubts. Um, and there are sort of more strident versions of this uh, that are very much out there uh, and alive in, in certain conservative Christian circles, um, you know, people who really believe that the, the only way to sort of restore the health of the United States is to kind of completely Christianize it again. Um, there are even extremely radical, though fringe versions of this um, that people refer to as theonomy, which believe that, uh, that the United States, United States has to be subjected to Old Testament biblical law. You know, adulterers have to be stoned and uh, you know, the whole nine yards. So this is very much of a fringe view, but a sort of a softer version of this, that somehow uh, there's no place uh, for non-believers or non-Christians of a particular kind within the United States is very much out there. And I see civil religion 
as, uh, as a way of perhaps sort of bridging and overcoming this conflict between liberal secularists and re religious nationalists, which I think, in my view, is a lot of what the culture wars of the last 25 years have really been about. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor Gorski, for sharing some of your research with us. Thank you. For more information about Professor Gorski and his research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another segment of the Macmillan Report, made possible by the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.